0: This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is part one of four of Professor Hankel's class series, The Doctrine of Revelation. It is entitled, The Idea of Revelation. In the course of my teaching church history in the seminary, it came to my attention that if there is ever to be Reformation in the Church of Christ, that movement which is genuinely Reformation is characterized by three distinct features. The first feature which is necessary for any movement to be a genuine uh, Reformation movement is an awareness of and a condemnation of the heresies and false doctrines which are being taught and promoted in a mother church. It is a recognition of the fact that the doctrines which a mother church is teaching are doctrines which are contrary to the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. It is not only an awareness of that, but it is a determination that such a thing must not be allowed to continue in the church of Christ. Second feature, which inevitably characterizes and must characterize any true reformation in the church, is a determination to return to what Jeremiah in his prophecy calls the old paths, and which mean the paths of... The truth of the confessions, which have been entrusted to the church as their heritage, and the truth of the scriptures as that truth becomes evident in the polity and government of the church and in the worship of the church on the Lord's Day. It is a return. It is always a return. It's always a going back. It's always a summoning once again of that which is past but has been forsaken and abandoned. But the third requirement of all genuine church reformation is a look ahead. Church reformation can never, never take place in the Church of Christ where those who supposedly are engaged in it are always bothering themselves about negatives, are always involved in a condemnation of the errors in Mother Church never get anywhere beyond saying how evil the church was from which they came out. That will never serve as a firm ground for church reformation. A church cannot move forward if it is constantly negative. And therefore, all true church reformation requires too that the church, which genuinely is a reformatory movement, Develop in the truths of the word of God. In studying carefully the history of our own Protestant Reformed churches, I am personally convinced beyond a shadow of doubt that these three elements were present in the events of 1924 and 1925, which led to the establishment of our denomination. There was a clear recognition of error There was a sharp condemnation of error as being contrary to the word of God and the confessions of the church. There was a return to the old paths, to the old truths of the canons and of the Heidelberg Catechism and the confession of faith. There was a return to the government of the church as it is outlined in the scriptures and defined for us in the church order of Dortrecht. There was a return to psalm singing and the centrality of preaching so that the worship services were once again in line with the historic Christian faith. There was also, and that is to my mind the one great reason why we as Protestant Reformed churches ought to be as thankful as we are for our existence. It was not this concentrated and useless negativism which some charge us with, as if the whole existence of our churches was wrapped up in nothing else but a constant and unceasing condemnation and reprobation of common grace and the well-meant offer of the gospel. The Protestant Reformed churches were not that way. We can thank our spiritual fathers for this, who set the goals high and who themselves engaged in extensive work in connection with the positive development of the truth. Any of you who have read my book, For Thy Truth's Sake, are aware of how important I consider this third element to be because a significant portion of the book is devoted precisely to pointing out how our churches have advanced in a positive way in the development of doctrine. That's why 1924 and 1925 were genuine church reformation. And that's why even in our own day, many movements, although they leave Mother Church and although they leave Mother Church for doctrinal reasons and for apparent or obvious apostasy, have no genuine claim to being reformatory movements because There is no positive direction in doctrine and in the truth of the word of God. One of those doctrines which our fathers developed is the doctrine of revelation. God's revelation of himself. As you know, when the dust had settled and our churches had been established on a fairly firm footing. And the spiritual fathers of our denomination had opportunity to examine the implications of common grace and the well-meant offer of the gospel and had, have had opportunity to examine these things and the effect these errors had on many other doctrines in the church and had uh, begun to re-examine the Scriptures to see what the Scriptures actually taught when the doctrine of common grace was abandoned and the emphasis fell on God's sovereign and particular grace. Many, many doctrines came under the scrutiny of Reverends Herman Hoeksema and George M. Opoff. One of them was the doctrine of revelation. I had the privilege, as you know, of studying in the seminary under both Reverend Huxma and Reverend Ophoff. They were years of intense spiritual growth. They were years marked by constant investigation of many, many doctrines of the Word of God in the light of our own unique Protestant Reformed position. The doctrine of Revelation often came up for discussion if I may introduce at this point just a brief biographic autobiographical note, I think there was not one doctrine of all the many doctrines which we discussed which intrigued me personally as much as the doctrine of Revelation. So true was this that when I first settled into the parsonage in Hope Protestant Reformed Church and got my feet on the ground a bit, I resolved within a year of the beginning of my ministry that someday I was going to write a book on the doctrine of Revelation. And so I set a file aside in my desk where I could put notes and quotes and ideas and texts that needed investigating with a view to some future time when I would write a book on this subject. It was the one subject, more than anything else, on which I wanted to write. In fact, I had even picked a title for that book. As I recall, I had taken the title for that book from John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know thee the one true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And I thought an appropriate title for that book on Revelation would be To Know God. But nothing materialized of that book. I wouldn't be surprised if I would prowl around in the in the dark recesses of one of my old filing cabinets. I still might be able to find that file somewhere but it has been neglected for many, many years under the pressure of other obligations and responsibilities. That doesn't mean I've lost interest in writing the book, it's just that when one is at this stage in life, one begins to realize that there isn't much time left for writing and probably there will never be an opportunity to get around to that particular subject. However that may be, The reason why I bring this up is to tell you how much this subject appeals to me and how much it has meant to me. And although the book never even got off the ground, nevertheless, the subject of Revelation has been an intriguing one to me over the years. In fact, it's rather interesting that in the years I taught in the seminary, forget how many that is now, it's over 35 as I recall. The question, as the students over all these years explored various implications of the truth of the scriptures and came up with hundreds and hundreds of questions in the give and take of classroom instruction, I found that as often as not, when we got to the bottom of questions, the answer to the questions which the students asked inevitably involved the subject of revelation. Again and again and again, we would return to that subject as we pursued various questions in theology. Romans 1 I think I went through Romans 1, verses 18 and following with the students probably 50 times in the course of my teaching and various other passages which have to do with the truth of Revelation were constantly on the agenda in the classroom. So there has always been much opportunity to think about this subject and re-examine what Scripture has to say on it. I want to do that with you in the next weeks as we explore this subject, and I hope that the the intense beauty of the subject and the towering importance of the subject will somehow be in your own heart and mind as we look at various aspects of this doctrine. Tonight, is sort of by way of introduction to the subject and by way of an introduction to the concept and the meaning of the concept, the idea of revelation. There are three things that are of concern to us tonight. In the first place, the importance of the subject. Secondly, the meaning of revelation. And finally, the the blessedness of it. The burden of what I have to say tonight is going to be found in the second point. First point is going to be rather brief, and so is the third. Second point is going to take all the emphasis. That the doctrine of Revelation is an important one is not only true today in the times in which we live, but has been true throughout the history of the church. I was struck by the fact that in the teaching of church history there was a heresy that appeared in the early church, almost the first heresy that appeared in the post-apostolic church, which heresy was successfully refuted on the basis of the doctrine of revelation. That's a surprising thing. The heresy to which I refer is the heresy of Gnosticism. Maybe I can put that on the board so that you know how to spell it. Gnosticism comes from a Greek word, Gnosis, which means knowledge. It's a very early heresy because, as a matter of fact, there are some references to it, although not by name in Scripture itself. Apparently the heresy is so early that it was present even in the apostolic church. And Paul makes reference to the heresy in his epistle to the Colossians. The apostle John also refers to the heresy in his first epistle. And the very introductory words of that epistle are intended to refute the error of Gnosticism. Now, that error in itself is not so important as far as its details are concerned for us tonight. But there was one characteristic of Gnosticism that was particularly appealing to the masses. And this error, as a result of its appeal, was so successful in the churches in Asia Minor and in the uh, eastern coast of the Mediterranean and in North Africa, that in the second and early third century, that heresy came perilously close to destroying the church. For a while, it was a question whether the church could even survive under the compelling attraction of Gnosticism, The characteristic of Gnosticism, which is of interest to me tonight, is the fact that Gnosticism was the first attempt to establish an ecumenical church. If I may put it that way, if I may put it in modern terms, Gnosticism had this feature about it, which was its distinct characteristic that it wanted to make one world religion by taking the best elements out of several prevalent religions. wanted to take the best elements out of Christianity, the best elements out of what at that time was called Neoplatonism, and the best elements out of Oriental religions, the mystical religions of the East. Zoroastrianism particularly, which was very much like today's mystical religions that are found in Buddhism and Hinduism and the like. And taking the best elements out of all of these various religions which were prevalent in the ancient world, it wanted to construct a system of theology which would be universally appealing and which would create an ecclesiastical roof under which all the world could dwell in peace and harmony. That was its characteristic. There were some important church fathers who were heavily influenced by Gnosticism. To mention but one, I refer to the church father who went under the name of Justin Martyr, very early church father who was absolutely convinced that many, many elements of truth could be found in pagan philosophies and pagan religions, so much so that it was not even necessary if a pagan truly believed his religion to know about Christ and salvation in the blood of the cross. The church, after a bitter and prolonged struggle that lasted over a century, finally succeeded in defeating Gnosticism. That's, by the way, if I may interject that, that's one reason why there are various universal-like religions today promoted by ecumenists and ecumenical movements as the World Council of Churches which want to embrace all these world religions as well and put them all together under one ecclesiastical roof and, and take the position that there are many, many ways to God and that Christianity is only one among an assortment of ways. Times don't change all that much. Solomon is right, even when it comes to doctrine that there is nothing new under the sun. But however that may be, the point that interests me now and the point that is of concern is this. When Gnosticism was successfully resisted and the church was purged of Gnosticism, it was on the ground of the doctrine of revelation. And the answer of the church to all Gnostic claims was simply this. Christianity is founded on revelation. And because Christianity is founded on Revelation, Christianity has its origin in God, because God is the author of Revelation. And all the pagan religions of all the surrounding nations and wherever they may be found are not founded on Revelation, but are founded on the imaginations and inventions of men no matter how knowledgeable and intelligent they may be. Which said these church fathers, and I refer particularly now to one of the greatest of early church fathers, Tertullian, which means, said Tertullian, that there is an absolute cleavage, an absolute distinction, an unbridgeable chasm, between Christianity and all other religions and philosophies, whatever they may be. And the chasm is simply this. Christianity has its origin in the revelation of God. Pagan religions and human philosophies have their origin in the fevered imaginations of men. And said Tertullian, because of that, The two will never meet. The two will never find a common ground. The two have nothing in common. They are as disparate as night is from day. They are opposites. The one is over here. The other is over there. And ne'er the twain shall meet. But it's the doctrine of Revelation that makes the difference. And only when Christianity insists that what it believes does not have its origin with man or in man's imaginations, but has its origin in heaven, will Christianity continue to be the religion that alone brings salvation. That was towards the end of the third century. We may thank Tertullian for that, but you immediately see, of course, that it is precisely the doctrine of common grace that challenges that absolute antithesis between Christianity and all pagan thought, and that after all finds a great deal of truth in pagan philosophy and other religions of various kinds. My Greek teacher in Calvin College, in the years I was taking Greek, wrote a book, the title of which was The Marriage of Jerusalem and Athens, in which he promoted the notion that truth could be found in Greek philosophy as well as in Christianity, a flat contradiction of what the church had stood for, not only, but a flat contradiction of that truth which, in the Second and third century saved the church from disaster. Now, what is interesting about all this is that this was the first significant heresy in the post-apostolic church. If we would now look at it from the perspective of Satan, who is always the author and instigator of heresy, then we would have to be, we would have to come to the conclusion that Satan understood that if he could persuade the church to adopt some kind of a theory that there is good to be found in all religions and that all religions can coexist on the same plane, the church would be destroyed. Satan knew it, and it seemed to Satan in his machinations and plans against the church to be the Achilles heel of the church. That's where he struck, and he was defeated in his nefarious and evil attempts and plans only because of the doctrine of Revelation. But if we carry it yet one step farther back, beyond Satan, the instigator of heresy, to God and his sovereign control, even over Satan and the affairs of the church, And we must understand that at the very beginning of the church's history, before the church investigated any other doctrines, and before it tackled any other doctrines, the church had to be clear that its very existence depended upon the absolute divine origin of religion through revelation. God wanted it that way. And if anything stresses the importance of that doctrine for the church, therefore it is history itself, the history of the church of Jesus Christ. That's even true of the the cardinal doctrine of the absolute divinity of Christ, which was, of course, the first doctrine to be challenged within the church and to be answered by a written confession, the Creed of Nicaea, drawn up in 325. Gnostics denied the divinity of Christ. As a matter of fact, Gnostics denied the humanity of Christ. Gnostics denied the unique character of Christ. Gnostics said that the human nature of Christ was merely an appearance. And that's why John begins his first epistle the way he He does. You recall those profound words. But notice, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, of the word of life, For the life was manifested and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, that is a refutation of the error of Gnosticism which denied the reality of Christ's human nature. John says, we handled it. We handled it with our hands. We saw it with our eyes. We heard it. It's real. But so it has been with many, many doctrines in the history of the church. I don't want to go into these things in detail at this point because we're going to be exploring these things, the Lord willing, in in a couple of other uh, classes. But let me briefly point out to you the implications of the doctrine of Revelation. The doctrine of Revelation is, especially from a certain point of view, Tied closely to the doctrine of common grace. William Maslink, in fact, a minister, a late minister in the Christian Reformed Church, wrote a book. that's still available today, although it's out of print for many, many years. General Revelation and Common Grace is the title of the book I have at home. It's a pretty thick tome. The burden of the book is simply to show that the concept of general revelation and the idea of common grace are inseparably entwined with each other. And it's precisely that doctrine, that false doctrine, that general revelation and common grace go hand in hand and cannot be separated from each other which has been appealed to by the Christian Reformed Church in support of dangerous heresies. It's been appealed to in support by the synodical decision as the basis for theistic evolutionism. After all, the word of God in creation is the word of God too. And if the word of God in creation says the world is 15 billion years old, we must accept that word of God. And if the scientists who are thoroughly saturated with common grace in their study of the creation come to that conclusion on the basis of so-called scientific evidence, we have to accept their word because... They are operating, too, by grace, by the grace of God, be it a non-saving grace. That idea is embedded in the decision of the Christian Reformed Church in its support of theistic evolution. It was probably something of this sort that prompted Reverend Huksima to subject the doctrine of general revelation now to careful scrutiny and In the course of the years, it's interesting if you're acquainted with his writings to see the development, it's interesting that gradually, bit by bit, he came to the point where at last he simply abandoned the entire doctrine of general revelation. If you read his earlier writings you will find the the term general revelation rather frequently used. In fact, in the old Essentials book on which many, if not most of us, cut our theological teeth, you will find a specific mention of general revelation. But if you read Huxma's writings, say, in the mid-40s, latter 40s, you will discover that when he spoke of general revelation, he put the term in quotation marks, as if to say, what's called general revelation. I'm not so sure about this concept anymore. And then if you read his more mature writings of the late 50s or his speeches where he made mention of this, you will discover that he abandoned the the concept altogether. And it was while I was in seminary in 1952 through 1955 that he would explain to us why gradually he came to an understanding of the fact that general revelation was the real culprit in the battle against evolutionists, also in the church. I'm not going to talk about that tonight because I hope to discuss that more in detail next week, the Lord willing. That makes this significant and important. There is, however, another reason why the doctrine of Revelation is so crucially important as far as I am concerned, and that is this, that the doctrine of Revelation, if it is properly understood and biblically maintained by us, is going to act as a ring to keep us in all our theology from ever becoming man-centered and to hold us on the pathway of a God-centered theology. The doctrine of Revelation does that. If you understand it properly, you can't hold to the biblical doctrine of Revelation and lose your theological bearings and become man-centered in your theology. It can't be done. Let me illustrate that with one very well-known doctrine in our Protestant Reformed circles. How did Huxma arrive at his doctrine of the covenant, the everlasting covenant of grace which God establishes with his people in Christ? How did he arrive at it? Where was his starting point? Where did he begin in his investigation of that doctrine? in the doctrine of Revelation. And he began in the doctrine of Revelation because he began with God. God is in himself as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in person, and one in essence, a covenant God. He lives a covenant life in himself, apart from creation, apart from man apart from anything he may do outside of his own divine being. What is the covenant then? It is nothing else but the triune God revealing. There's that word, revelation. Revealing to man the covenant life which he lives in his own divine being. Revelation. When God establishes his covenant with us and with our children, the primary focal point is God telling us what kind of a God he is. And he does that by taking us by grace through Christ into the covenant life he lives in himself. We may have opportunity to talk about that a bit more. But you see how you begin with God. And just as soon as you begin there, and just as soon as you approach the whole of the doctrine of the covenant from the perspective of revelation, you're not going to go astray. You're not going to get wrapped up in the idea of a covenant as an agreement between God and man, a covenant which has conditions which God must fulfill and man must fulfill before the covenant can actually be put into effect, and so on and so on and so on. You can't do it. It doesn't fit. It won't work. Because the doctrine of revelation is the crucial point. And so it is in our battle against evolutionism and against all forms of it, creation is revelation. And revelation excludes evolutionism. There is no revelation in life beginning by a molecule 10 billion years ago crawling out of some primordial primordial ooze and gradually defending over, developing over eons of time to higher and higher forms of life. Where's the revelation of God in that kind of nonsense? Creation is revelation. God speaks. And because creation is revelation, providence is revelation. Don't ever forget that. It irritates me. It angers me. When a man who is supposed to be a solid Calvinistic Presbyterian in the most conservative Presbyterian church can say, quote, Providence, ordinary providence is the controlling power of creation. What does he mean by that? He only means that natural law governs evolutionary processes. No, providence is revelation. God is revealing himself. That's why history is revelation too. But enough of that. I hope I have impressed you with the total importance of this subject, which is going to engage our attention. Let's go on to the second point. The the word revelation in Scripture comes from this Greek word, something like that. We get our our English word uh, uh, apocalyptic from it. Apocalyptic. What is that word that is sometimes used for the book of Revelation as the title of it? Uh, Apocalypse. Apocalypse comes from that Greek word, which means in Scripture to reveal. Now the basic idea of this word is to uncover, and it has in mind this whole idea of a ceremony that will sometimes take place in a city park where the statue of a very important man or a or some person who was extremely important in the community is being displayed for the first time in public. If you've ever been to any of these ceremonies, the statue is there and there is a huge covering over it so that no one can see it. And lengthy and long-winded speeches are made and bands play and, and so on and so forth. And then at an appropriate time, the veil, the covering, is pulled off the statue and there it is revealed for all to see. That's the basic idea of this term in Scripture. And in fact, that very word was used for ceremonies similar in the ancient world. So when we talk about revelation, what we are saying in effect is that revelation means that God uncovers himself. That is, makes himself known. Now, in order to get at this idea, I want to give you four or five characteristics of this revelation, all of which I consider to be extraordinarily important, and I hope you will write them down and and go over them at home and think about them. In the first place, God's determination to reveal himself is, let's put Him on the board, shall we, sovereignly free. That's crucially important. If you don't believe that, then you're going to fall into all kinds of crazy heresies. What does that mean? That means this first of all. God was under no necessity in His own divine being to reveal Himself. He was under no compulsion. There was nothing in God Himself that required revelation. He is, in His own divine being as the triune God, absolutely perfect, absolutely full, absolutely glorious and happy, and bless it. He doesn't need to reveal himself. There's nothing in his being that requires that he do it. There is nothing in Revelation that enriches him. Makes him greater than he is. Nothing. Nothing at all. When God determined to reveal himself. He's simply determined to do it with absolute freedom. They didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. And I dare say that the whole doctrine of sovereign, and particular, grace, rests on point number one of the characteristics of Revelation. If you teach that there was... I can't spell that out tonight. Maybe that's not necessary. If you, but if you hold to the fact that God was under some compulsion to reveal himself, that there is something in the nature of God which made revelation necessary, you're a pantheist. That's all there's about it. And you know what pantheism teaches. That everything is God. And billy goats. And finally, devils. And men and pantheism is the characteristic of all mystical eastern religions already at the time when gnosticism was rearing its ugly head the doctrine is absolutely important i remember not many years ago two or three at the most in which i carried on a lengthy correspondence with a theologian in england no in northern ireland who insisted that the revelation of God was necessary, a necessary part of his being. That's heresy. That's heresy in the extreme and inevitably ends in pantheism. God was free, sovereignly free in his determination to reveal himself. Revelation does not enrich him. Revelation does not make him more blessed than he is. In the second place, Revelation is miraculous. Miraculous. That is, it's a miracle. If you stop to think about it, you can understand the reason why this is true. God is, after all, the transcendent one, the, the holy other one. And we are creatures. He's the creator. We are temporal. He's eternal. We are finite. He is infinite. And the chasm between God and man is so wide and so deep that it is impossible for man to cross over that chasm and come to God. And to make God the object of his investigation. And to study God. That's impossible. Absolutely, totally impossible. The difference is too great. The chasm is too vast. God is God. All the nations of the earth are as grasshoppers in his sight. Less than the the dust of the balance. Now... You understand, therefore, that if we are to know God, as we do, it can only be if God comes to us. It's the only way. How can we go to him? Can we put him under a microscope? He must come to us. But he not only must come to us, but he must show himself to us in a way that we are able to understand. And our understanding is so limited and so feeble and so insignificant that he must come to us and make himself known unto us in such an incredibly simple way that from every human point of view it seems to destroy the very transcendence of God himself. How in the world can I make myself known to an ant that's crawling on the sidewalk. And yet the difference between God and man is greater than the difference between me and that ant. God must not only make himself known in a way that we can understand, but he must make himself known in a way that understanding we truly know him. That's denied in our day. I don't know, you're probably only marginally acquainted with that, but it's very popular in our day, even in Reformed circles, to say, well, if we believe in the transcendence of God, any true knowledge of God is really impossible. Even Cornelius Ventil, the great theologian of Westminster Seminary, taught that. Now, what I'm saying is this, that God speaks to us in a way in which we can understand, and when we understand it, somehow in some altogether mysterious and wonderful and inexplicable way, we know him. Calvin talks in an effort to explain this in his institutes about the fact that God talks to us in baby talk. He lifts, because all we can understand is baby talk. To be frank with you and to be honest with you, the wonder of Revelation and the marvel of Revelation is so great that I can't explain it and I can't understand it except for the fact that it is a miracle that defies human explanation. Here is the record of that Revelation. A human book printed by Oxford Press in the year... 1998, on India paper, filled with human words, finite words, in the English language, and in these human words, finite, is revealed the infinite. That's a miracle. You can't explain that. And you mustn't even try But thank God it's true. And it's precisely here, when you're talking about the miraculous, that enters in this notion that this important idea that our knowledge of God is extremely limited. The knowledge of God, I mean, God in himself is a vast, vast, infinite ocean we sometimes with our theology and many books we write on theology think we have gotten somewhere. All the confession and all the faith of the church and all the writings of all the greatest theologians of the ages, when it is all put together and all the knowledge accumulated through all the years of church history is brought into one, it's less than a thimble full of water in comparison with all the oceans of the earth. What we know is next to nothing. And that's why in heaven, when we are in glory and we continue to grow in the knowledge of God into all eternity, for we will, I'm convinced of that, we will grow and acquire more and more and more knowledge of the one true and living God When eternity has gone on for eons and eons and eons, our knowledge of God will be almost nothing in comparison to the infinite depths of the riches of the truth concerning the Most High. Revelation is a miracle. I don't care in what form you speak of it. It is a miracle. And it behooves us to recognize that because that keeps one on his knees and that keeps one humble. We, beloved, simply don't know much. And yet what we know, little though it may be, is true knowledge, the knowledge of God, whom to know is life everlasting. To me... This is what makes theology the most exciting adventure in the whole world because there's no end to it. There's always new depths, new truths to explore, new riches to mine out of the load of the scriptures, new countries to explore, new mountaintops on which to stand. There's no end to it because it involves the knowledge of an infinite God. But we know it. We know him as our God and as our Father. The third thing is that revelation is always through the Word of God. Verbal, if I may put it that way, but verbal in the profoundest sense of the Word. That's Ephesians 3, which Bruce read. That's John 1. That's Hebrews 1. It's Proverbs 8. You see, the life of the Trinity is a life of fellowship and communion because there is within the Trinity a holy conversation. The first person of the Trinity speaks the second person of the Trinity and in that way generates the Son. And that's why in John 1, John almost with awe in his voice says, in the beginning was the word God spoke. And the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. By him were all things made, and without him was not anything made that was made. God spoke, and the creation came into existence. And the word That God spoke, became flesh, and dwelt among us. Hebrews 1. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake to us in times past by the prophets has in these last times spoken to us by the Son. The Son is the Word of God. Everything is the Word of God. Creation is verbal. Creation is God speaking. When you go home tonight for your devotions before you go to bed, read Psalm 29, where the w- Word of God in the creation is extolled. What a marvelous, marvelous Psalm that is. It's all the Word of God. Why? Well, because you see speech is at the very heart of covenant fellowship. And here we have to tie in the idea of the covenant with revelation. It is the heart of the covenant fellowship that God lives in himself. He talks with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so to reveal himself, the triune God speaks the word Christ. And that's revelation. And that's why the Bible is the word of God. Always word, word, word. Why? Because God speaks, and not only does he reveal himself, but he reveals himself in such a way that the result is covenant fellowship. That's a marvelous truth. I want to explore some of the implications of that a little later. You understand, of course, let me add that right away too, that if revelation is through the word of God... All revelation is through Christ, because Christ is the one word of God. There is no revelation of God in nature and revelation of God in Scripture. This being the word of God that he speaks through cows and bedbugs and mosquitoes and alligators, and this being the word of God which we have on the pages of Holy Writ. No, 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 no. That isn't the Bible either. All God's speech is... Well, let me put it this way. God only ever in revealing himself says one word. What is that one word? Jesus Christ. That's the one word which he says. And therefore Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He is the fullness of the revelation of God. What Paul calls... In 1 Corinthians 2 and in Ephesians 3, the mystery of the ages. Here is man to whom this revelation is made. But he himself is a word of God and he himself is part of the revelation of God. That's the amazing part of it. Man is incorporated into that revelation as himself a part of it and yet at the same time, is the one to whom the revelation is made. Let's leave it at that for tonight. Maybe we can pick up a few other things next week, the Lord willing. But I want to end with a few remarks about the blessedness of this. To know God in the Bible Is the prerogative of the elect. Revelation is not general, revelation is particular. Revelation is not to all men, it's only to God's people. Revelation is grace, but not common grace, special grace. Revelation is part of the work of salvation. And for that reason, it always is. You won't find a text in Scripture that ever uses the word revelation in any other way except for God's salvation of His people, making Himself known to them. Even the revelation of God in creation is for the elect and for them alone. I want to talk about that a little more a little later, but The result of that revelation is the knowledge of God. Otherwise, revelation means nothing. And if it is the knowledge of God, it is the knowledge of God in that profoundly biblical sense of the word. This is eternal life. That's Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17. This is eternal life, that they may know Thee. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. The knowledge of God which is graciously given to us by the miracle of revelation is not merely intellectual information but it is to be caught up in God's covenant fellowship and to be blessed forever.